Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Erin Holt. I'm an integrative and functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude in well over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs. And I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a school in practitioner mentorship where we help other clinicians level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what this show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I would love for you to subscribe to the show, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Now give me the mic so I can take it away. This episode is part of our Functional Nutrition Podcast Legacy Series. Through the months of April and May, we will be releasing two shows each week, you lucky ducks, one brand new episode and a Legacy Series episode, which is a re-release of our top downloaded shows. Think about it like the People's Choice episodes. This is because we have new listeners coming to the show all the time, and we want you to have easy access to the top shows. And we've got longtime listeners that love to listen to the best of the best. Hey, if you're ever looking for a specific topic or show, don't forget to check out our website. We've got a special search feature that makes finding shows super easy. So here's a Functional Nutrition Legacy Show. Hello, my beautiful babies. I've got a big old show for you. Food sensitivities is the name of the game today, and this is a big conversation with a lot of moving parts. I'll say this later on in the show, but it's been almost five years that I've been podcasting, and this is the first time that I'm actually going to attempt to talk about food sensitivities in full just because it is such a tricky thing. And as you listen to today's show, you'll start to understand why it's not. This is not uh, something that has a very straightforward answer, and I think this is a a situation or a, a place in health where we oversimplify a very complex thing. And so I'm going to do my best. Lots of questions were submitted. I'm going to do my best to get into all of them. I always, if this this conversation leaves you feeling more confused, I would definitely suggest downloading my free digestive guide. You go to thefunctionalnutritionist.com forward slash digestion, because that helps you troubleshoot. The the thing with digestion, it's a a top-down process. And so sometimes people are having digestive issues and they're like, is it a food sensitivity? Am I reacting to something I can't really tell? I, I like to recommend dealing with digestion from the top down. And this guide is a way to help you do that. It's a way to help you troubleshoot that. And so if you apply some of those principles or those uh, tactics in the digestive guide and you start to feel better, maybe it's a situation where we shouldn't be blaming food for something that your lowered digestive capacity um is doing. Uh, Now, if you do all of that and you're like, oh, okay, still got some weird things. I've got some weird reactions. I'm going to go into uh, symptoms of food sensitivities today. If you're getting those symptoms, okay, then it's time to look into maybe it's a food sensitivity issue. All right. You have all asked me for an official update. I've been using Kian Aminos for every single day for months now. And so I've gotten enough DMs to know that I got to address it here. I will say what I've seen for myself, definitely enhanced muscle growth. I mean, you wouldn't look at me and be like, whoa, she's swole, but I can tell. And I'm putting up heavier weights a lot easier and I don't get sore. So I'm like more likely to, I'm lifting more because I don't have like have that muscle fatigue or just like that soreness. So strong recommend. This is why Kian Aminos really is my fundamental supplement for fitness. You can naturally boost energy, build lean muscle, enhance athletic recovery. It's backed by over 20 years of clinical research, highest quality ingredients, no fillers, no junk. It undergoes rigorous quality testing and it tastes amazing. My personal faves are the mango and the lime. If you're looking for flavors to try, you can save 20% on monthly deliveries and 10% off one-time purchases. Go to get Kion.com forward slash funk. That's G-E-T-K-I-O-N.com slash F-U-N-K to get my fundamental supplement for fitness, Kion Aminos. 
All right, my athletes and my fitness freaks, are you getting enough electrolytes? You kind of need them. They're kind of a big deal. You lose a lot through sweat, but just don't be replacing them with any of the junk. No sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no fillers, no yuck. You need Element. It's not only delicious and wicked convenient, mixes in water super easily, but it also contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio, 1,000 milligrams sodium, 200 milligrams potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. You can get a free sample pack that's eight single serve packets for free with any Element order when you go to drinkelement.com forward slash funk. The deal's only available through my unique link to thank you for listening to the show, drinklmnt.com forward slash F-U-N-K. You can try it risk-free, okay? Food sensitivities, let's do it. It's a huge topic. I posted a question to Instagram. I got a lot of questions, so I'm going to do my very best to be as comprehensive as possible for a one-hour show. Now, some of the questions that were submitted were from practitioners, and I just want to let you know that in the Functional Nutrition Academy, my 14-month practitioner training program, we dedicate an entire month to food sensitivity. So that's 18 modules dedicated to food sensitivities. So what I can't do is take that month's worth of content and try to get it into a one hour time slot. Um, It's a huge topic. And I think that this conversation, when we're talking about food sensitivities, is incomplete without discussing the downsides of restrictive healing diets. And that's where Jessica Flanagan comes in. She does a one-hour lecture. It's probably one of my favorite modules of the entire 14-month training, to be honest with you. I just, it is such a massive problem and the way that practitioners are going about it. What I've seen in my experience can oftentimes do more harm than good. And I don't mean that as a dig or a critique against practitioners. I just feel like so a lot of them are in over their heads uh, because they don't know or they don't understand or they can't comprehend this emotional component of uh, elimination diets and food sensitivities. Uh, we also have a module that yours truly teaches that I I call autonomous eating, which is essentially bridging the gap between functional nutrition and mindful eating. Like how do we, how do we navigate food sensitivities and taking foods out of the diet and inflammatory foods while also being able to make space for mindful eating and intuitive eating? Um, we also discuss how to appropriately interpret food sensitivity testing so you don't cause more harm. Um, if you're running food sensitivity tests on your clients, you, you really need to know what to do with the results and how to effectively communicate that with your clients. I can't tell you how many clients come to me and they have, they, I always ask for labs when I work with, with people that they might've done with other providers. And I get all of these food sensitivity tests and they've either just like pulled them out of their diet long-term or they're like, I don't know what to do with this information. There's just a, there's a, seems to be a lack of like effective communication. Um, so if you're running these tests, you really want to know how to leverage that data. And we also help you map out a step-by-step process, how to help your clients navigate through food sensitivities, because as we'll learn today, it really is a growing problem. I mean, I can't, I got well over a hundred questions about food sensitivity tests, like a, a lot, a lot, lot, lot. People are struggling and it's a growing problem, but also practitioners understanding how to help or lack of practitioners understanding how to help seems to be a growing problem as well. So if this is something that you want to do a deep dive on um, this is part of the Functional Nutrition Academy. That's uh, functionalnutritionacademy.com. We'll link it up in the show notes. Okay, okay, okay. So let's talk about testing because got a lot of questions. The, I would say the most common question that I got was about food sensitivity testing. What's the best test? Coach with Carmen said, what is the most accurate test available for food sensitivities? And um, this answer might underwhelm you or disappoint you. There really isn't one best test in my opinion. We have in my clinic, we have two different lab companies that we work with for food sensitivity testing, but 
this is a really nuanced and sometimes controversial discussion. Different tests use different methodologies. So for example, there's cytotoxic testing like MRT and ALCAT. There is antibody testing. Within antibody testing, there's different, there's, there, there, you could look at different antibodies that the science or the, not the science, the methodologies behind the actual lab test uh, can is different. So there's microarray, there's uh, ELISA testing. There's just, there's lots of different stuff and it. it gets very um, complex. We, we talk about all of this in the, in the Functional Nutrition Academy for practitioners, but for uh, consumers, it, it can be very confusing because it is confusing. <laughs> Um, but just understand that when we're talking about different tests, we're not always comparing apples to apples because different tests are looking at different things. So for today, what I'm not going to do is tell you that there's one perfect test. And in fact, I'm overly cautious about anyone who has a strong allegiance to one lab company or one lab test. And that includes food sensitivity testing. All of this stuff is, is kind of changing all of the time. And we just want to kind of stay up on the latest and the greatest. Um, but, but more importantly than like what test is the best, it, it's not just about the test. It's about the interpretation of the test. So I had a client who came to me with a ton, recently with a ton of food sensitivity testing. She was told by her functional medicine provider to stop eating all the foods indefinitely, but was never told why. And she wasn't told, she had so many lab tests done and she wasn't told, nobody explained to her what the results of her food sensitivity tests meant in context with all of her other lab testing. Uh, And this is going to start to make more sense as we get further on in this discussion. She also wasn't given an exit strategy for reintroducing foods or retesting. And we're going to talk about that too. In my opinion, this is when food sensitivity testing can become problematic in a clinical setting. It can lead to unnecessary restriction, meaning that you're pulling out foods that might not actually need to be pulled out or might not need to be pulled out long-term. And then limiting your food like this can open up even more problems. It can create nutrient deficiencies or uh, unfavorable microbiome shifts. Uh, It can create food fear, food anxiety, stress, the emotions associated with having to micromanage every morsel of food. That can create a lot of stress. And I know that there's people listening, nodding along, being like, yes, this is my lived experience. In fact, I just got off with a client just this afternoon, an hour ago, and uh, she had been put on AIP diet, that is autoimmune paleo protocol, and uh, by her functional medicine provider. And she's like, I can't, I can't live like this. But even still, every time I go to eat a bite of a potato that's off plan, I have so much guilt associated with it because I feel like I'm doing something wrong with my body. Now, for those of you who have participated in my body intentions breakthrough, which by the way, is available for purchase. We packaged it up for you and we added some goodies so you can purchase that anytime on my website. Um, You know that the thoughts that we think as we do something, you're essentially programming yourself as you do it. So if, if every single time she sits down to eat, she is thinking, oh, this isn't good for me. A freaking potato. This isn't good for me. This isn't good for me. This isn't good for me. What is her body going to do with that food? It's going to, it's, it's probably not going to break it down in an appropriate way. And so from a kind of like a, uh, a brain perspective, we really want to be mindful of how we think about food as we eat food. And these elimination style diets can really kind of like muck up people's head. And so we just need to be, I am not saying that there's not a time and a place for an elimination diet. I'm not saying there's there's not a time and place for food sensitivity testing. We just want to be really mindful of this um, if we're practitioners. And if you're not a practitioner, but you're on the receiving end of this, make sure that you're working with somebody who has a lot of compassion for your experience going through this and navigating this. You should also feel really comfortable to ask questions um, about 
lab tests and how the results of certain lab tests and the data from certain lab tests might be influencing other things in your body. So for example, this client that I was just referring to had low secretory IgA. When she asked her um, her practitioner about this, he was like, uh, and she asked like, does this have anything to do with like the food that I'm eating? He was like, oh no, the only reason your your secretory IgA is low is because of dysbiosis, which is just, I don't, I don't, I don't know why he would have said that because, so secretory IgA is an immunoglobulin. I've talked about it. I did a whole show on secretory IgA. That was a banger. <laughs> I love that one. Uh, it was so good. And I talked about how I was able to bring up my chronically low secretory IgA. Um, but as I as I said in that show, and as I've said multiple times, with low cortisol production with a like a sort of like a burnout picture, we can see low secretory IgA. It's pretty common. Um, and as you'll learn in today's show, low secretory IgA can absolutely impact food reactions. They, they can oftentimes go hand in hand. So if I just think that if we're going to ask from a practitioner side of things, if we're going to ask our clients and our patients to spend thousands of dollars on lab testing, we should be able to effectively pull all that information together and communicate that. Um, and again, if you're on the receiving end of this, if you're a client or a patient who just spent thousands and thousands of dollars on labs, your provider should really be explaining that information. That's my opinion. Um, and we want to be able to develop a treatment strategy based on the data or else what is the point of running all of these labs? I had somebody write in um, and she said, this is on Instagram, um, my recent stool test results showed secretory IgA was off the charts and acromancia was below Detection is high secretory IgA and low acromancia a classic case of leaky gut. And what I'm about to say, I want to be very clear this is not a dig at the person who submitted this question. I am happy to answer the questions that are submitted that will help the most people. Obviously, this podcast is not a replacement for one on one work, but I'm, if, if, if I think a question submitted can help a lot of people, I will definitely make sure I get it answered. I am just frustrated that we're at a point where people are submitting these questions about their lab tests that they purchased through a public sticker box on Instagram rather than being guided by their ordering practitioner. So that's frustrating to me as I'm sure it's frustrating to this person if you just you know, got this stool test and still have questions. Ideally, your practitioner should be available to answer those questions. So high secretory IgA, just to be just to be clear, in case you do have a stool test, high secretory IgA usually means that the immune system is kind of screaming. It's reacting to something. And we see the two most common reasons. One is um dysbiosis. So if the, the body is like fighting something off, it's fighting off a pathogen or an opportunist, um, we might see secretory IgA elevated. The other one is food sensitivities. So if you have high secretory IgA, it might be because your body is, or your, yeah, your immune system is reacting to, um, a food that it, it's, that's not really in alignment with your body at that moment in time. So that could be a red flag to like, hey, maybe look into food sensitivities. Low acromancia, um, acromancia is a is a, a beneficial bacteria that can really help to make the the gut healthy and strong. So yeah, if if you have acromancia below detectable limits, that's going to mean that you. Um, you're going to be more likely to have a leaky gut or intestinal permeability just because that bacteria isn't there to like help to keep the gut healthy and strong. But what I would say, like we could absolutely see this pattern with leaky gut, but these two things are not diagnostic criteria for leaky gut. I don't think you can just assume, oh, I've got it. I've got the the leaky gut because of these two things. However, that pattern, we could certainly see it. Um, but I, I just think that this, everything I'm kind of rambling on about really opens up an even bigger conversation about the huge problems that we're seeing in the functional nutrition, functional medicine space. And I'm going to go ahead and save that conversation for later so we can focus on food sensitivities today. Um, got a lot of questions about skin in relation to food sensitivity. Um, and we can see skin 
as a symptom, skin stuff as a symptom of food reactions. Skin is a part of the immune system. We have immune cells in our skin. And so if we are having antibodies getting triggered in the gut. So if we're eating a food that the immune system is like, oh wait, that's not food, that's a foreign invader. Attack, attack. And then we produce antibodies. That gets right into the bloodstream and then that goes right into systemic circulation. Do you hear me stutter? Systemic, systemic circulation. Uh, When inflammation is kind of like happening on a systemic level, it can get to the skin. So immune cells in the skin can be stimulated with that inflammatory response. We can see that inflammatory response play out through the skin. We can see it activate. We can see it flare up. So if you have an inflammatory skin condition, it could be a red flag to look to the gut. It usually is like look to the gut. Now it could be food sensitivities. It could be dysbiosis, but that is kind of a, the the skin gut connection is a big one. Um, I would have you check out episode 121, the skin gut connection, episode 122, where I drill into more specific skin stuff like rosacea, acne, eczema, uh, psoriasis. Episode 156, we had an integrative dermatologist come on. And then episode 87, we had Jennifer Fugo on and she talked about skin health as well. So we'll link those up in the show notes for further listening if you wrote in about skin. We also had a lot of gluten questions. I'm not going to have the whole gluten chat today. Check out episode 142, gluten sensitivity and celiac disease. I also went into some of this episode 125, thyroid health, gluten, and Hashimoto's. Okay. Now I'm like cracking my knuckles. Let's do it. I first want to start by defining food allergy versus food sensitivity so you can understand the difference between the two. Functional medicine, the or like the alternative health world and functional medicine kind of tend to dismiss food allergies and really hyper focus on food sensitivity testing in the same way that conventional medicine totally disregards food sensitivities and really focus on food allergy testing, IgE testing. Both matter. Both are valid. Both are real and both are important. So we don't want to just throw one out and only focus on the other. Like both can play nice in the sandbox. Both can be a part of this conversation. We have different ways we can react physiologically to food, I am going to talk about some immune responses. When we're talking about food sensitivities, we're talking about an immune response, right? But there's also histamine reactions. There's also cross-reactivity. I mean, those are technically immune responses too, but just different immune responses. We have mold reactions. We have, so we're reacting to the mold in the food. Um, We can react to food additives. We can react to lactose. That's lactose intolerance, which is not an immune reaction, right? So there's many different ways that we can react to foods. For today, I am going to talk about food allergy and food sensitivity. These are immune responses. So it's IgE, IgM, IgA, IgG. These are just different shaped antibodies which produce different immune responses. Food allergy, like a true allergy, is IgE mediated. That is the name of the antibody, immunoglobulin E. I always think about E like emergency. That's how I always kind of keep that in my brain. E is like a true food allergy. In this reaction, it's immediate. You eat the food, you have an immediate reaction. It happens right away. And mast cells are involved. We've got a histamine response. And this is why it can start to impact airways. It can impact your digestive tract because there is this mast cell histamine response. So you can see nasal congestion. You can see hives. You know, you somebody eats food and then they break out in hives. Headaches, itching, wheezing, breathing issues asthma type symptoms, uh, stomach cramping. And then the most extreme outcome would be anaphylaxis, right? So that's why, where, why some people have to carry around EpiPens for their allergies. Now, 
typically this is a pretty like well, like you kind of know when you have this, not always, but this is, this is a more obvious reaction. Um, I want to say, since I'm talking about histamine, um, you can have a histamine reaction to food. So you can have histamine intolerance. You can, um, you, you know, you can have a histamine response to certain foods, high histamine foods without having an IgE allergy. So I just want to make sure that that's clear. Um, you know, histamine are, is involved in both, but it's kind of like two different things. Uh, somebody had asked Maisie Green Wellness asked, do you treat food sensitivities and histamine intolerances the same? This is a great question. Um, the answer is complex. It's kind of like there is some overlap between the treatment depending on root cause. Um, so it's a pretty complex answer. Great question, complex answer. We unpack that uh, in the Functional Nutrition Academy based on your handle. I'm assuming that you are a uh, wellness provider, so that might be something for you to check out. We do spend an entire month addressing clinical strategies on how to help people. Um, definitely more complex than I can answer in a one-hour show, but yeah, there's there's some overlap, but it's we're 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 dealing with like two different things in that um, when we're talking about food sensitivities and histamine intolerances. Now, what a food sensitivity is, it's a different immune reaction, still an immune reaction to food, but it's not mediated by the IgE response. It doesn't lead to that immediate activation of mast cells, that immediate histamine response. We're dealing with different immunoglobulins, IgG, IgM, IgA, and this leads to more of a delayed inflammation, delayed reaction. This is where things can get really tricky with food sensitivities because it's not like, oh, I eat the food and my tummy hurts. And I think that's what a lot of people look for. Like, oh, I'm eating it. I feel fine. But it can take three up to even four days after the initial exposure before you have symptoms. So you might eat corn on a Monday night. Maybe you have a bowl of popcorn watching the old man on a Monday night, by the way, I'm Jeff Bridges. I have like a, I have like a crush on him, like a bona fide crush. Have you guys seen the old man? Phenomenal show. First of all, definitely watch it, but he's like a babe. He's like babelicious. I think he's like 70 or, or more. Anyway, check it out and report back. I don't think I'm alone. His hair. It's like, he's like phenomenal. He looks so good. <laughs> Anyway, uh, maybe you enjoyed popcorn and a sign of Jeff Bridges on a Monday night. And then you wake up with symptoms Wednesday morning. That's not uncommon with food sensitivities, but it can be really hard to figure out, oh gosh, what caused it? Because chances are between Monday night and Wednesday morning, you, you ate a lot of different foods. So that's where people start to kind of get a little bit nutso in their brain because they're like, what is causing it? So it can lead these these delayed food reactions or what we call food sensitivities can lead to a systemic inflammatory response. And that's why symptoms can be all over the map. And just the symptoms, the different symptoms can cause confusion and anxiety. Uh, Kay Hayes 16 asked, how do you know if you have them? Referring to food sensitivities, the obvious and the not so obvious symptoms. And you know, it, it's not, it really isn't obvious in a lot of a lot of cases, um, just because the symptoms can be all over the place. It can be hard to figure out. And this, this, what I've seen time and time again, this can be really pitch someone into a hypervigilant state where you're like scanning, 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 looking, waiting, waiting for a reaction. Look at the baby, look at the baby, look at the baby. This is especially true if you have any history of trauma, right? Your brain is already really great at that hypervigilant state, like on guard, waiting for the thing to happen, scanning, 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 scanning. Like what's the bad thing that's going to happen? You're like waiting for it. You're expecting it. The, the problem with that, other than just the constant worry and stress, is that when you're 
in that hypervigilant state, the limbic system in the brain is constantly ringing the alarm bells, which is setting off this downstream neurochemical reaction. And that actually is going to make you more predisposed to reacting to foods. Your body does not understand the difference between being in a real life or death situation uh, and you just having stressful thoughts. Your body registers it all the same. So if you're worried about reacting to a food or you're like, should I take a bite of this? Is this going to cause me problems? Like, can I eat this potato? Oh dear, I ate the potato. What's going to happen? It's bad. It's bad. It's bad. If you're in that state, when you eat food, it really is going to impact how your body deals with that food. Um, and it, it might not be cut. So you might have like a, a reaction that feels like a food sensitivity, but it might not be the immune system. It, it might just because be because your stress system, your alarm system, your alarm system is activated and that dramatically impacts how your body responds to food. So your ability to break it down properly, your, your ability to digest it appropriately, all that gets jacked up, all of that gets impacted. So this is like a classic case in point. You go on vacation and, and I hear this all the time. Like you go on vacation, you're like high vibe and living your best and you realize you're able to tolerate more food. And that's just because your body is not in that high fear, hypervigilant state. It's in a relaxed state. So that's where things get really tricky. Um, if, if I, if what I just said, if you're like, oh my God, she's describing me, go listen to episode 161, how fear affects the brain and body or the body and the brain. That's a really, really good one. And then again, I would highly recommend checking out the body intentions breakthrough the URL, the URL is thefunctionalnutritionist.com forward slash body dash intentions dash breakthrough, but we'll link it up in the show notes. It's a lot of letters. Um, this really helps to kind of unwind that hypervigilance. And it really, it doesn't Im, uh, impede any other work that you're doing. So you can use it as a companion guide to whatever dietary or health protocol that you're on. It really can serve up as a companion guide. We also go into a lot of this in your hormone revival. So um, on top of getting functional lab testing and working one-on-one with the provider, um, we also go into a lot of these concepts. So there is, we have resources for you. All is not not hopeless if you're in that state. And we're going to quickly interrupt this discussion to shout out our longtime sponsor, Organifi. Because of our recent travel and festivities, my family and I have been doubling down on Organifi's green juice. Personally, I love the crisp apple variety. I always bring the packets to share with me when I travel, especially if there's some shenanigans going on. Lots of antioxidant and detox support, which I personally find a lot of people need based off of lab tests that I see, but also just modern day life. Green juice has wheatgrass, moringa leaf, spirulina, chlorella, matcha, also has ashwagandha, beetroot, turmeric for more polyphenol antioxidant support. So if you've got someone in your family who doesn't love eating green veggies like my husband, this is a great option. You can save 20% off of your order. Head to Organifi.com forward slash funk. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash F-U-N-K to try their green juice. Be sure to use code funk to save 20%. When I start to feel my stress and anxiety kick it up a notch, like Emeril Lagasse, I personally lean on Ned's De-Stress Blend. It's a certified organic formula that features two powerful plant compounds, CBD, and then the lesser known CBG, which is considered the mother of all cannabinoids because of how effective it is for anxiety and stress. De-Stress Blend also features ashwagandha, one of my favorite adaptogens. And I think I say that about all the adaptogens, but ashwagandha was my gateway into adaptogenic herbs. So I do have a special love for it. Invest in yourself and fortify your stress response. Get 15% off of Ned's De-Stress Blend with code Funk, go to helloned.com forward slash funk or enter code funk at checkout. That's H E L L O N E D.com slash F U N K to get 15% off. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. Okay, so for symptoms of food sensitivities, they really show up differently for every person. Essentially, it always reminds me of the David Bowie song, Cat People. It's like putting out fire with gasoline. Um, 
feel like that's kind of my personality. Um, but basically, wherever there's a fire, that's where that's where inflammation shows up more. Food sensitivities basically activate any underlying inf- inflammatory response. This is what I mean by it's like pouring gasoline on the fire. And I've talked about this concept of like your weakest link on the show before. We all kind of have our cranky bits and like sometimes they're totally fine. And then if we're dealing with a higher load of inflammation, that's where things start to get a little like squawky, right? They, they talk to us a little bit more or it could just be downright painful or we can actually physically see stuff. So that the the inflammatory cascade can essentially be everywhere and anywhere. Skin is a big one. Um, my good friend Kyle, who um, she was my co-host at the start of this podcast, we, I think we actually talked about this on one of the episodes. But her weakest link is skin. She is has a, a really extreme sensitivity to almonds, and so anytime she eats almonds, she'll get uh, or if she uses like products with almond in it. Um, she, she might get uh, scalp stuff. Um, she might get acne. She might get a rash on her eyelids. It like all comes out through her skin. My weakest link is like really kind of like in the joints. Like I'll, I'll feel like achy in my joints. So it could be skin. It could be joint pain. It could be back pain, headaches, sinus infection. Uh, it could be change in cognition. If you've got inflammation in the gut, that inflammation can go to the brain. This is why a lot of folks will say, oh, I removed the food and I got rid of my brain fog. Recently I had a client tell me she got her brain back, right? So it makes a big difference in like how you think, whether you have brain fog, you're, you know, like basically like your processing of stuff. Um, so this is why it's kind of hard this is the the world of food sensitivities are are so confusing because the delayed reaction and then the symptoms can be all over the place. Like I said, it's not as simple as I eat the food, I get the tummy ache. Um, The integrative EMDR therapist asked, how important is it to be strict with food sensitivities? I'm super strict with gluten, but I'm not as strict with soy. This really has a lot to do with your own immune system and what is going on. Food sensitivities can have different effects for some people. Um, and it really has a lot to do with with your level of inf- inflammation. If somebody doesn't have tons of inflammation, and if they do have an immune reaction to certain foods, but they don't have a lot of inflammation, they might not really see a lot of symptoms from that. Whereas if somebody's dealing with, say, like autoimmunity or an inflammatory disorder, a big inflammatory process, that's when food sensitivities can really flare up their symptoms because it's just adding, it's gasoline on the fire, right? It's adding more. It's increasing their overall inflammatory load to the point that it becomes symptomatic. So that's a really tough question to answer because it's so unique to you in your body and like what's going on. All right, let's shift into another big question, which is like, what's up? What's up with food sensitivities? Why are they so common these days? Because, you know, it's like back in my day, there wasn't a peanut-free table at school. Back in my day, gluten wasn't a thing. I think there can be, or I know there can be like a little bit of a stigma, a little bit of an eye roll, a little bit of a high maintenance vibe when it comes to food sensitivities. And that actually pisses me off. I would like to obliterate this because, you know, I've been doing this work for 12 years and a super common question that women will ask me is, well, what do I do if they find out they have food sensitivities, right? Or they're they're reacting to something. Well, what should I do when I'm eating out with people so I'm not an inconvenience? And it's like, women are more willing to sacrifice their health than to like even flirt with the potential of maybe making someone else uncomfortable. So I really think this speaks to a much bigger societal problem, which is that women have a very hard time taking care of themselves, especially if it makes it feel like they're putting somebody else out, right? We don't have the time to unpack that today. (laughs) Go back to the other 200 and I don't know, 13 episodes where I've explored this. But what I want to say is that like, if you are in that camp, if you have food sensitivities, if certain foods make you feel like crap, but you're like nervous to tell your friends or your family, or they, they kind of like give you a little bit of grief about it. 
how you eat should not impact anyone else unless you're pregnant, right? Unless you're pregnant, then obviously, you know, it does actually impact somebody else. Um, This makes me think of uh, when Jay-Z in Heart of the City says, what you eat don't make me shit, right? What I eat should have no bearing on you in your life. And if it does, that's a you problem, my dude. That's a you problem. That's not a me thing. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to do what I need to do to take care of myself. I like feeling good. If you don't like that, that's a you thing to unpack. Cut that shit out. If, you, if you've done that to somebody else, cut that shit out, my dudes. What is up with that? Why do you care? Why do you care what somebody else eats? And if you're on the receiving end of this, which I, th- I suspect many of you may be, or at some point may have been, you got to do the inner work to get to a point where you can take care of yourself and get your needs met without feeling like you're a burden to others. And you can allow people to have their reaction without making it mean anything about you. Okay. Like let's just cut the shit already. Because food sensitivities are real. They're real. And remember, like we just discussed, if you've got a food sensitivity and you're still eating that food, either because you don't know or you're just trying to keep the peace with somebody else for some strange reason, that is adding gasoline to your fire. So we don't want to do that. But why are they so common? Why are they so commonplace? Why do we develop reactions to food proteins to begin with. There's two main reasons, two main things going on. I think I've addressed this on the podcast before, but let's let's really hash it out because we're talking about food sensitivities. One is the antigenicity of food has changed. Two is that how our immune system reacts to food proteins has changed um, or is changing for many of us. So antigenicity, that is how aggressive or reactive an antigen is. And an antigen is anything foreign to the body, anything outside the body, a pathogen, bacteria, virus, or a food protein. So antigenicity is looking at how active the immune response is to a protein and certain things can increase antigenicity or immune reactivity. That's not a good thing, right? We don't want to be immune reactive to the food's that we eat. That is a problem. But there's a lot of things, a lot of things going on with our modern food system that do or does increase the antigenicity of food, how we react to it, how we respond to it. Food processing is a big one. Modern farming practices, they are changing our food and making it more antigenetic. Antigenic. God, that's a hard one to say. I always butcher that one. But like, if you just think about it, right, think about food processing, think about all that it takes to turn corn, for example, into a Dorito, or to take wheat and turn it into a goldfish cracker, right? There's a lot that goes on. Um, Farming practices, the use of um, pesticides, the use of glyphosate, uh, GMOs, hybridization of seeds, these things can actually change the structure of the protein. So some pesticides can bond to the structure of the protein, change the structure of the protein. And when, when the, the protein structures change, it becomes more immune reactive. So once it hits our, our guts, you know, and our gut is, our immune system's right there at the lining of the gut. Once it hits that, the immune system's like, what the F is this? What is this? I don't know what this is. Nah, this is, this is an antigen. This is a foreign invader we don't want it. Friend or foe, yo, state your biz. It's like, this is definitely a foe we're going to attack. And that is just happening in, with, with more um, frequency just because of how dramatically our food has changed. Anything that changes the structure of the protein can or has potential to make it more reactive. So food coloring can do this. Um, the Basically, food coloring will keep proteins from being broken down into individual amino acids. We, the immune system recognizes amino acids. It's not going to like attack an amino acid. But if the body, if the gut is essentially presenting like big hunks of protein that have not been effectively broken down to the immune system, the immune system can be like, no dog, I don't know what to do with it. Get it up out of here. 
flag it for destruction. Here's an antibody coming in hot. Okay. So that's just happening all of the time. Um, environmental toxicity, environmental pollutions, plastic, air pollution, all of these things can impact our liver, can impact our barrier systems, like our gut barrier. When you hear leaky gut, we're talking about a gut barrier, uh, can impact our immune system. And all of this can feed into food sensitivities. So I know that's a little bit of an overwhelming thing to hear because some of that is out of our control, but I'm just striving to answer the question, why, you know, why are food sensitivities so common? We have to look to the uh, the environment, the outer world. There's an evolutionary mismatch, that concept that we've talked about a bunch. Our environment is changing faster than our immune system has been able to adapt, and our immune systems are freaking out. That's why rates of autoimmune disease skyrocketing and chronic disease skyrocketing, you know, we just see it so, 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 so much. One of the fallouts of that immune dysregulation is more food sensitivities. Um, we also have to look to the gut because as many of you understand, so much of our immune system does reside in the gut. And so if there's issues with our gut, that's going to impact our immune system and that's going to impact the way that our immune system reacts to food. So if we have poor digestion, low hydrochloric acid, I've talked about that a bunch. Um, again, our immune system isn't going to react when we take our protein and we break it all the way down into amino acids. The immune system's not going to have a problem with that. But if we don't have like the, the fundamental tools like hydrochloric acid to start to break down those protein structures, then the immune system's not going to know what to do. We can see um, low secretory IgA. I was just talking about that. That's, that can be really common with high stress, with low cortisol. Um, and what happens when secretory IgA is low, we can see overactive dendritic cells. Dendritic cells are these, uh, they're a type of antigen presenting cell, APC. I can't, I can't not say it. I can't not say it. I didn't get it that from anywhere. That's not a reference to anything other than what my brain does when I see dendritic cells. Uh, but dendritic cells are these, they have these like octopus arms and they reach into the gut and they sample our food and then they determine friend from foe. And so if these guys are overactive, so if secretory IgA is low and dendritic cells are overactive, they're, they've got an appetite for destruction. They're just going to start boom, 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 tagging everything for destruction. So that can lead to more food sensitivities. Um, G Brownie 9 asked, can food sensitivities fluctuate with hormonal changes? There is an interplay here. Estrogen and cortisol both affect those dendritic cells. Um, if estrogen and or cortisol is out of whack, those dendritic cells can also get overzealous and your immune system starts to attack your food. That leads to more food reactions. So yes, there's an interplay. I mean, that's just the human body, my dude. Like it's all interconnected. But one of the strategies for supporting or reducing food reactions is to balance your hormones. So you have an appropriate immune response to food, something that we kind of unpack in your hormone revival. So think about that. Um, stress is a biggie. Stress is a huge one. We kind of talked about that already, so I'm not going to go into the, the nitty gritty there. Nutrition, nutrition matters. Um, we talked about those dendritic cells. Vitamin A really helps to regulate um, dendritic cells. So if we have a vitamin A deficiency, we can react to more foods. Uh, of course, leaky gut, because if the gut is leaky, then those food proteins can leak into the bloodstream. They basically gain access to the bloodstream, systemic circulation where they really don't belong. And once they're there, they can trigger an immune response. And because like the bloodstream's right there, you know, it can travel anywhere. That inflammation can travel anywhere. So this is really important to understand. If you get a food sensitivity test back and it's like just lit up like a Christmas tree, like all the thing, like you're just like lots and lots and lots of reactions. 
it's more indicative that something is going on with the structure of the gut and or the immune system and not actually like you have like 30 true food sensitivities. That's honestly one of the reasons why I discourage at-home food sensitivity testing because if you don't understand this concept and you're not working with someone who can help investigate root causes, then you're going to create a potentially unnecessary restrictive diet for yourself and just pull all of those out. So I am hearing more and more people understand this concept. Like a few years ago, I I didn't hear it talked about, but there's a lot of uh, practitioners are saying, you know, if you have a hyperreactive food sensitivity test, it's probably leaky gut. Well, maybe totally, totally, totally something to think about. But the immune, you know, you might've seen me on Instagram. Sometimes I get a little snarky and I'm like, leaky gut protocols are lazy. I posted that. But it, because it's like, we don't want to oversimplify a, like I'm all about keeping things simple, right? And like doing the basics, super important, but we don't want to oversimplify a really complex thing um, because I don't think that that's how we help people either. So everything is not, doesn't all come back to leaky gut. The immune function of the gut is more than just a leaky gut. We, we have to think about secretory IgA. We have to think about those dendritic cells. We have to think about T regulatory cells. We have to think about this concept of uh, oral tolerance or dietary protein tolerance. If you lose that, if you lose oral tolerance, you can start to react to more and more and more foods with more adverse reaction, like a big clue that you might be dealing with loss of oral tolerance is if you do a food sensitivity test and like 30 to 40% of that test is lit up, right? Or if, if you're saying like, I'm at the point where I can only eat like five to 10 foods. If you, if you just react to every single thing that you get exposed to, right? That, that hyperreactivity is not always as simple as a leaky gut. It, it oftentimes is more complex than that. And so a lot of that, it, you know, you might think about uh, liver and detoxification pathways. Microbiome comes in in a major way. Um, bacteria in our guts can really dictate the response um, to our food. If we have low diversity, um, that can change the microbiome. We, we might be able to, it's hard. If we have uh, imbalance in the gut bacteria, we, we might see more of an inflammatory response when we eat certain foods. So the microbiome is a big key player, okay? So point is, there are so many different things that factor into food sensitivities. And a lot of what I just described is kind of like the modern day gut, modern day food world, uh, modern day stress, like all of this feeds into why we are seeing an uptick in food sensitivities. So next question, should we test food sensitivity testing, yay or nay? It is not the first place I go with most people. Um, there, you know, some of the problems I've already kind of discussed them, like misinterpreting or misunderstanding results. Uh, it can really elicit more food fear or unnecessary restriction. Um, when we run food sensitivity testing, it's not necessarily root cause because we still want to know, like sometimes food reactions can be a root cause. Some people are just straight up sensitive to gluten and or dairy and pulling those two foods out like changes their entire world. So sometimes food sensitivity testing is the root or a root, but sometimes it's a downstream effect of the root causes, if that makes sense. So for example, it it might be dysbiosis that is driving intestinal permeability. It might be dysbiosis that's driving immune function. And so if that's the case, pulling out a bunch of foods might actually make the situation worse long-term. But at the same time, if we're dealing with an inflammatory process, 
you know, this is, this is something we do often in your hormone revival because we are screening for inflammation. Sometimes when we're looking at the Dutch test, there's a lot of clues to inflammation, but then we are also screening, uh, in our blood panel, we're screening for, uh, inflammatory markers. And when you find evidence of inflammation, we want to go inflammation hunting. We want to find where's that inflammation coming from. And if you're eating a food that your body's reacting to, it might be contributing to overall, uh, your overall inflammatory load, like we talked about. So in that case, taking out foods that you're reacting to for a short period of time can make sense. And it might be a food sensitivity test that helps you figure this out. Now, I know I am not purposely making this sound more complex than it is. I just want to pause for a second. This is why I have made it almost five years in podcasting, and this is the first time I'm talking about food sensitivities because it is, it's tricky. It is tricky. And if if multiple food sensitivities is something that you've been battling, I think it makes sense to work with a provider who kind of like understands all of this and can help you troubleshoot, especially if you've been feeling overwhelmed. Um, the, the next series of questions is like how best to test or how to best determine your sensitivities. Trisha Kyler said, how to really know what food is causing issues. Kay Tang said, how do you know for sure uh, if you're sensitive to a food? By, by far, the, the gold standard is still the elimination provocation diet. It's pretty widely agreed upon. As I said, no test is perfect. They all have flaws. There can be flaws in interpretation. So listening to your body's feedback is gonna be the best way to suss out what you're reacting to. Uh, An elimination provocation diet is like you pull out a bunch of foods and then you add them back in to see if you have a reaction. Elimination diets, hear me, hear me, super important concept. Elimination diets are designed to be used on a temporary basis, right? Not long-term. You do it for a short period of time, you add the foods back in, you see how you do. So essentially, you remove foods for three to four weeks, and then you systematically and methodically add them back in one at a time. And remember, sensitivities are delayed reactions. So this process can take time. It definitely takes patience. Um, and that's where people can get a little bit spun out. Uh, Carol, Carolee, Caroline Vans, I don't know if I'm saying your, your handle correctly. Is it true that the cleaner you eat, the stronger the reaction if you one time don't? So there is some truth to this. When you're doing an elimination diet and you're pulling out a bunch of foods, Typically speaking, the first foods that you add back in will be the most reactive. If you're truly reactive to them, like if your immune system is like, no, thank you, ma'am. The first foods that you add back in will most likely give you the most guff. Pretty much the way that it's, it's been taught to me is that the immune cells have kind of been given a break. And now all of a sudden they're like rip roaring and ready to go. But it, it's not, so you might have this big reaction and it's not the elimination diet that like caused that sensitivity. So I've, I've heard this before. People are like, oh, well, I didn't think I had any problem with gluten. I, I pulled it out when I added it back in. All of a sudden I had all of these problems. It's like you were probably living with like kind of like a low degree of inflammation and it was like kind of hard to tell like what was causing the problems. You remove the gluten or whatever, tr- you know, whatever food and then give your immune system a break it kind of like starts to do its Wolverine thing, its self-repair thing. And immune cells kind of like gain, you know, appropriate function. And then you eat the food and they're like, oh, no, hell no. And they go in hard. So um, just kind of keep that in mind when you do, and if you're doing an elimination provocation diet is that yes, you can be more reactive. Again, it's not the elimination diet's fault. The immune system is like fired up. Um, if you have that like big reaction and then you add in another food in the provocation part and you have another reaction, what can happen is that like the gut starts to get really like inflamed. And so then anything else you add into the mix, you're probably going to have a reaction to, or you're just not going to be able to really suss out if you're reacting to it. So you might've done that before. I have like, you, you might have done an elimination diet, added a food back in, been like, oh my gosh, that's a no-go. 
added another food back in. Now you're like, I just feel like crap. I don't know what I'm reacting to anymore. And so that's where the elimination, even though elimination diets are the gold standard in terms of sussing out food sensitivities, they can be so confusing and stressful. Um, like I said, there, it takes time. It takes patience. Um, and that's where elimination diets can be like a real mind F. So again, like I said, this is where it can be helpful to work with a practitioner. If you've been DIYing this to like with no success, if you've been kind of on the elimination diet merry-go-round for a while, and it might be, if, if this is you, this is kind of where I think that food sensitivities can like come into play because especially if you're like, am I, am I not? Like, is that, am I sensitive to this? Am I not? Can I eat it? Can I not? And you're just letting this like back and forth, um, yes, no, maybe so, kind of like create a lot of stress and havoc in your mind. I, that's what, in those situations, I'm like, let's just test. Let's see what we come up with. Knowing that some of what we see on a food sensitivity test might have underlying root causes, right? But we can use that to guide what we do temporarily while we're working on addressing those underlying causes and trying to restore immune function and restore the gut function. And then we can retest. That was another question Krista Vincent asked, is it recommended to get retested for food sensitivities? Hell yes. Hell yes. Hell yes. Definitely. Um, and then, you know, you're th also being mindful of the investment because, you know, these, the tests, at least the tests that I run, they're not inexpensive tests. So you want to be like kind of plan for that. Okay. Last, I want to wrap this up by like, all right, what, what do you do? Right. Um, like what are the, the next steps here? Leslie boss box asked, can you get rid of them? Lisa Marie, 82, or Lisa Marissa, 82. Can we heal from food sensitivities? So many of the questions were about like, are they, you know, is there a potential to heal? It is my belief that we can heal from anything. Again, body intentions breakthrough really covers that. I, I was asked in an interview a couple months back, um, she asked, when it comes to healing the gut, what is something about food that you think most people get wrong? And my answer was that people really underestimate how much our brain, our thoughts, and our mind impact our gut. I also think that people are not always great with being able to self-identify stress in the body. So they're like, I'm not stressed. I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything's good. Um, when in reality, their body is in an active stress response. So they're not digesting appropriately. Like, is it a food sensitivity or are you just not digesting your food? Is it a food sensitivity or are you not chewing your food? Is it a food sensitivity or are you just so stressed out that you're like you know, your gut has like turned off. It's like gone offline. So again, this is a lot of the, th the stuff that we explore in your hormone revival, just because it matters so, so much. In episode 138, I talk about how hormones influence the gut. And I would definitely recommend kind of checking that out. But again, you know, your, our guts have the ability to heal themselves like Wolverine, superpowers, self-healing capabilities. So if it's not doing that, first of all, we have to figure out why, right? There's so many different things that can, that can contribute to leaky gut. We want to kind of un uh, understand why the food that you're eating is a biggie, the stress, the, the mindset, like all of that really dramatically influences the gut. So we want to address that. Our thoughts our beliefs, they drive our behaviors. All of this is a huge and really overlooked part of gut healing. People want like a supplement or a protocol or like a cleanse or a, a special diet. And it's like, cool, all that stuff matters, but we also have to look at our mind and, and the, the story that we're telling ourselves, right? So I will say that you absolutely can heal from food sensitivities, but you have to be willing to kind of understand what's driving, look, really look at what's driving the food sensitivities in the first place. Um, Aisha Bass-Ruhr, forgive me if I'm not pronouncing your last name right. Apart from not eating these foods, are there any other ways in which I can support my body? Yeah. All that stuff that I just talked about, stress, balancing your hormones, right? Um, it's not just about avoiding the food. And in fact, that's not always 
suggested in all of the cases. Now, this is especially true if someone has multiple food sensitivities. Of course, the first step to addressing this is uncover, understand why someone's reacting to all of those foods. Is it lower digestive capacity? Is it an immune system thing? Is it uh, loss of oral tolerance, low secretory IgA, dysbiosis, right? All the stuff that we already discussed, that's going to kind of dictate how to proceed. But the other thing, especially with a loss of oral tolerance, multiple food sensitivities, reacting to everything, trying to get as much variety and rotation as possible is really, really important. Um, A diet that is low in diversity, it's just going to create a whole health whole host of health problems, low butyrate being one of them. Butyrate helps to lower inflammation. Butyrate prevents leaky gut. It prevents food sensitivities. It supports healthy gut motility. It supports the immune system. Uh, Butyrate is a short-chain fatty acid that that does a whole lot. And we need variety in order to produce those short-chain fatty acids. Harley Frank had asked, she was, or she said, I was low FODMAP and a year later still sensitive to some. How can I eat normally again? I am not a real advocate or fan of long-term low FODMAP diets because they can be so restrictive. Um, I talked about this in episode 144, considerations for a low FODMAP diet. I talked about this in episode 147, inflammation and what you're not eating. Um, in those episodes, I referred to a small trial that showed after only four weeks of a low FODMAP diet, bifidobacteria were decreased. Um, Another 21-day study showed that acromantia and clostridium were decreased. So these are the ABCs, keystone species of the gut microbiome that keep our, not only our guts, but our entire bodies and brains healthy and strong. And so we have to really feed those bacteria in the gut. And so this is why you don't want to, if you see, this is why I'm not an uber fan of a food sensitivity test, unless you have all of this context and all of this understanding. If you see a test that's super lit up, we don't want to just say, okay, got to remove all of these foods. Bingo, bingo, dodge Drango. Now I've got 10 foods that I'm allowed to eat. Great. Life is great. No, we don't want to do that. We want to say, huh, something, something fishy is going on here. Maybe my gut is leaky. Maybe my immune system is overzealous. And maybe I really have to work on getting more variety to support the immune system, managing my stress, supporting my overall gut health, healing my gut. And in doing so, I can reduce the reaction of uh, the reactions that I'm having to food. So holy smokes, I'm sweaty a little bit from that one. That was a long one. I hope, I know, like I said, I know this is a big topic really complex, not a lot of like real clear cut answers, but I hope that I provided some answers for you, some clarity and some solutions and maybe even a little bit of hope. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you got something from today's show, don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.